In this interview, I'm once again joined by Dr. Thomas Clough Daffern, philosopher, educator, peace activist, and peace officer for the Council of British Druid Orders. In this episode, Thomas shares his lifetime of research into the Druid tradition of the British Isles and Europe, including his historical research and personal contact with Druids today. Thomas reveals why most modern-day Druid groups are Reconstructionists, and probes the possibility of a living Druid lineage in certain areas of Ireland. Thomas explains why he believes Jesus was an initiate of the mystery schools of his day discusses the connections between Celtic culture and mystical Christianity, and shares his current research into the Gnostic Gospels and the Gospel of Mary Magdalene. Thomas also considers the guru-disciple relationship, what enlightenment means in different traditions, the dangers of prematurely declaring one's enlightenment, and offers warning signs for recognizing spiritual cult leaders. So without further ado, Dr. Thomas Clough Daffer. Dr. Thomas Clough Daffern, welcome back to the podcast. Yeah, greetings. Hello. I'm very delighted to have you back on for a second interview. The first one was so fascinating. We're recording this the day before the winter solstice. Mm. And I'm curious uh, if you have any thoughts about the winter solstice. I know your studies have included all kinds of uh, areas, including Druidism and all sorts of things of that nature. Do you celebrate the solstice or do you do anything particular on the winter solstice? Um, yes, you're right. I mean, I've been interested in Druidry and studied it and practiced it for, I don't know, 30 years. Um, I got into the study of Druidry really when I came back to Britain in the 1980s, early 1980s. I was asking myself, what on earth is this tiny little country? Why did it have this huge impact on world history? What's its spiritual secret? Um, and I studied um, uh, the, I came across the work of Dr. John Dee in the British Library. I was spending all my spare time in the British Library as one does in one's youth. And um, I threw myself into the study of sort of esoteric um, uh, Tudor movements and discovered Dee and discovered that he was Welsh and that the the Celtic stream within the Tudor dynasty and within the Welsh was fundamentally tracing back to Druidry. He called his son Arthur. And I said, well, that's very interesting. What is this thing? So I read lots of books and I studied and I, I went to all the sacred sites I could find. You know, I visited Avebury, slept out there. And the more I looked into it, the more I thought, gosh, this is interesting. These are the indigenous primal original inhabitants of the British Isles. Long before the English, the Anglo-Saxons ever arrived, these Welsh and Celtics were here, the Britons. And um, <clears throat> so I studied it. And, and then later in the, um, the kind of late 90s, I ran a, a course at a Catholic abbey in Gloucestershire, Prunash Abbey, called Spiritual Resources for Peace and Justice. And I invited people from all faiths um, and, you know, uh, William Bloom came for the New Age. We had a Sufi chap come from Scotland. We had um, a Christian monk from the Abbey and so on and so on. And I discovered there'd been a Druid-Christian dialogue at Avebury <clears throat> going on. So I invited them to come along, you know, Druid. And this chap turned up called Douglas Lyne, representing the Druid Council of Britain. Now, the what? I said, I didn't know there was one. You know, like I thought they were just Druids in books, 
But no, there was a council. <clears throat> and anyway, to cut a long story short, we became good friends. He came to that meeting and and he was an interesting chap who'd been actually in the Battle of Monte Cassino. He's an older chap. And he'd um, he'd met the Archduke of Wales on the troop ship going out to um, Egypt, Alexandria, with the Eighth Army. I mean, he was full of amazing stories. We became good friends, and he introduced me to the Druid Council of Britain. And I discovered there are, there are these surviving Druid orders throughout Britain. Um, and, you know, I used to go along to the meetings, and that was in London in the late 90s. And then they were struggling for access to their sacred sites, particularly at solstices and equinox, particularly Stonehenge, but also others. And, of course, the government, the English heritage, which manage these sites, you know, have no cognizance of their rights at all. I just launched an interfaith mediation service dealing with interfaith conflict resolution. Um, so I sort of took it on as a case. I thought, no, this is wrong. These pagans have rights. They should be able to go to their sacred temple, um, especially at Solstice and Equinox. So I used to go along and join them. <clears throat> anyway, to cut a long story short, I was, I was elected peace officer of the Council of British Druid Orders. I still am which meant I, I have to sort of organize negotiations, discussions between the different orders and the authorities for access at, at um, different times, particularly solstice and equinox. So if I was in, I, when I lived on Breeden Hill for seven years, I used to go to Avebury a lot. I ran full moon meditations. I used to go down for most solstices and equinoxes. The summer solstice would usually see me at Stonehenge, organizing a peace stewards group i would run the trainings for them i don't know if you know the history of this but in the in the um like mid 80s the hippies or travelers or druids or pagan community used to go to stonehenge every midsummer solstice and they wanted to have a sort of california style love in they'd bring their guitars strip off smoke joints and gaze at the moon and at night they'd see ufos you know those were the 70s right <laughs> and and then that was fine i mean they were quite harmless they just that was their thing right just as it was in california but in the 80s the mood changed the tory party got into power it it basically wanted to abolish joy apart from the elites the elites in britain can have their joy in their champagne and their parties as we've seen with the tory government now the rest of the people have to be on lockdown in a sort of Puritan uh, state of ugliness all the time. Um, <clears throat> so they abolished this, this midsummer party because too many poor people would go, people who weren't from the right class, you know, because Druidry is, is a multicolored, multi-dimensional uh, thing. It attracts people from all classes. I've met lords and ladies and I've met uh, people that are completely like homeless and dog on a string and that's it sleep in ditches they're all important to me so um the police did this thing they blocked all the roads i think it was 1984 um 1985 possibly and forced the travelers into a field which happened to be a bean field there are about 800 of these vans and then they attacked them with their truncheons um in a sort of battle gear they were not normal policemen it was all pre-planned uh, they had visors, they had those huge shields and helmets. 
and they proceeded to smash up the travelers' vans. And that was their livelihood. That's where they lived. And they dragged people out, kicking and screaming through broken glass, women, children, nursing babies, you know. It was shocking. And um, since then, there was always a cordon around Stonehenge every midsummer solstice. The diehards, like Arthur Pendragon, and there are several other charismatic people, have still tried to get there on foot and were always arrested. It was a ritual. They were arrested. In that original thing, 1985, I think, um, about 800 people have been arrested in the Beanfield and held in prisons all over South Britain and, and never charged. They'd not done anything wrong. This was an extraordinary miscarriage of justice. So I set up a Truth and Reconciliation Commission for Stonehenge with a pagan priest who'd been involved in that. They call it the Battle of the Beanfield. In fact, nobody fought back, apart from one guy I met in Ireland, I won't say his name, who'd fled after that conflict. He had used his Druid staff and actually fought back and floored a couple of policemen. And then he escaped on foot all the way to Ireland, and he's never been back to England. He said, England's a police state. I'm not going there. I met him in, in the uh, 2000s when I interviewed him, um, <clears throat> and he gave me a Druid... Um, like a, like a wooden thing he carved, you know, and uh, a talking stick uh, made from Irish bog oak, which I still use. So anyway, so yeah, being peace officer of the Council of Druids is an interesting, unpaid, voluntary and complex bit of service. I see it as my karmic service to, to the British Isles. But since I moved to France, I've deliberately chose to come and live in a, a park called La Creuse, which is surrounded by oak forests. This is the heart of old Gaul. It's the Druid stronghold of Gaul, because this was, this was um, Druid central as well as in Britain. And we know that um, every, all the great French cities, Poitiers, Chartres, Paris, were built and run by Celtic tribes, the Parisi or whatever. Limoges, uh, Lemovici was the Celtic tribe. And the Druids would have laid out the towns and so on. They stretched all the way into Austria, Switzerland, and Northern Italy. Milan and Bologna were both Celtic foundations long before the Romans turned up. And I've been researching all this here whilst I moved here five years ago. Um, you know, most French towns and cities have dolmens uh, scattered about stone circles. So it's not just Brittany, it's all over Gaul. And we know that Vercingetorix was a Druid who fought Julius Caesar. He invaded Gaul to try and destroy, and he succeeded, he won, because he used unfair tactics. He was, um, he actually was a war crime, a cr war criminal Caesar um, in the Druid eyes. We still think we should put him on trial. There should be a retrospective trial on Caesar. But what he did was very sneaky. Um, he was summoned back by the Senate in Rome because he was slaughtering Gauls too much. Even they didn't have a stomach for it. And some moderate people called him back to face war crimes trial, basically. And instead of going back like a good boy and facing that, he marched on Rome with an army and seized power. That's what dictators do. That's what corrupt people do. And that started the whole ball rolling of, of you know, nightmare Caesarism ever since. Um, so, yes, I will be celebrating. I mean, if I was, if, if it was uh, normal times, I'd be, at, you know, there's a Druid site not far from me where I go and do prayers and stuff. But I'm going to be organizing a Zoom event uh, seminar for Druids all over Europe because I've set up the Druid Council of Europe now. 
um, and that's an interesting bunch of people we'll be sharing and reporting in. Um, <clears throat> you know, so sorry, that's a long answer to your question, but it's a it's a complex and big subject, which often people don't know about. You know, it's it's unknown. Yes, it, it's it's very interesting, and perhaps I can ask you a couple of questions. You've mentioned Christ as a continuer of the Druidic and pagan wisdom, and not a replacement. Mm which I think is quite interesting. I'd be very curious if you could elaborate a bit on that and the sort of Gnostic roots of Christianity that you've explored in your work. And I don't know, it might be even worth saying, who were the Druids, um, but briefly, and how does Christ uh, uh, play into that, in your view? Right. Well, the word Druid um, comes from an ancient Celtic root, which um, comes from the same etymology as Sanskrit. The first part of the name is Dharma, Dru, meant that which endures, which is permanent. Enduring is from the same root. And um, <clears throat> so is the word dharma. So was the word for the oak tree, dor, because the oak is the strongest tree in the forest. It endures for a thousand years. It's the permanent thing. It's the marker of truth or dharma. And they'd often do their rituals underneath an oak tree because they're very beautiful and they, they like stand for that um, solemnity. <clears throat> Blavatsky in The Secret Doctrine talks about the Druids you know, doing their rituals in the oak groves as continuing the theosophical ancient wisdom traditions from primordial times. Um, I, I think that that's true. I think that in India, they called it the Vedas, the Dharma, the Sanatan Dharma, the eternal truth. Um, you know, in, in the Hebrew tradition, it was the Kabbalah, the, the, the holders of the ancient mystic knowledge. And every culture has that, the shamanic. It goes back to primordial times. So the the and the second part of the name Druid is seer, which is the root of the word video to see, videre, and Vedas to see or know. So it, you could translate it as one who holds the Dharma of knowledge. <clears throat> what we know about them is they were the, the intellectuals, the castly pre uh, the priestly caste um, of the Celtic tribes of Europe. And as I said, they were extremely extensive. The Celtic tribes were stretching all the way from Orkney through to the Danube. The Danube River is named after Dana, the great goddess, of the, um, the, the Celts, who went to Ireland. And, and the Irish, um, one, one wave of the Irish, um, who later became known as gods, are called the children of Dana, Tuatha de Danann. Um, and we know the names of some of these gods. How do we know about Druids is because the literature was written down. <clears throat> it was an oral tradition. It was only handed down word of mouth. Uh, it long predates writing. So there's no, um, <clears throat> it was an initiatory thing. So you work through different levels of initiation. It was open to men and women. You specialized in either uh, like medicine, you know, they were the doctors of the tribes. You would spend years learning pills and potions and, and uh, all that, or you were a, a lawgiver, um, someone giving justice to the tribe. Their word was law, <clears throat> you know, above even the kings and the tribal chieftains. So, so the kings looked to the Druids for what is just in a given situation. Um, what, how should I deal with this person? And they would give advice. They were also the religious practitioners, so the priests, they would organize ceremonies, festivals, and so on, um, marriages, the equivalent of christenings, you know, all that stuff. Um, so 
Anyway, I've just published a three-volume encyclopedia on all this. It took me a couple of years, plus 30, to research it. Um, all the details, I've, I, well, not all, because it's impossible, but it's a 1,000 pages. And it's the first time any scholar of religious studies has ever bothered to do this. I mean, there are, there are some scholar Druids who do do learned books, and there's, you know, there's a bunch of, about 10 of us that, that do stuff. But nobody's ever put the whole lot together before. Uh, I suppose it was just my karma to do it. <clears throat> and I really enjoyed it. I think it's a really important work, actually. What about Christianity? Okay, so my view on the matter is this, that Christ was an initiate. He was um, a highly advanced um, student of the mysteries. I think that he, um, my view is that he'd taken initiation. He'd been taught partly in Alexandria. His kind of Judaism is very um, Alexandrian, like, like Philo. It's allegorical. He doesn't take the law, the written text of the Old Testament. He doesn't say literally, that's it, stone them to death. He's always trying to say, look, be flexible, be fluid. It's just in the writing. And that's why he says things like, you know, um, <clears throat> before Abraham was, I am. He was saying that we come from a place of presence which transcends the written law. And if we dwell in that moment of, of eternity, and we can, which we can call enlightenment or whatever, then we can enter the kingdom of God here on earth because we're coming from the place of the highest wisdom. Um, <clears throat> and, and the laws are only for people that like, don't, haven't got there yet, don't know that, can't come from that self-directed gnosis. Gnosis means knowledge or um, uh, you know, inner knowing. It's a common Greek word for higher forms of knowledge. And, and it's, it occurs in the Gospels that we have quite often, you know. One of my favorite passages is when he grumbles about the priests, the Pharisees. He says, they've taken away the keys of knowledge. And the word is the keys of gnosis. <clears throat> they've locked up the door. And they won't let anyone in. And they won't go in themselves. It's like they become blockers gatekeepers to stop too much gnosis because gnosis is dangerous because it leads to things like liberalism uh, flexibility in law it leads to less of a sense of caste and honor and uh, all that stuffy stuff and it 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 puts people on an egalitarian plane god dare i say it almost like a proto-spiritual communist type of plane um <clears throat> where people are living in love and brotherhood and sisterhood instead of dog eat dog and I think that's why, so that's what Christ, I think, was trying to do. Now, you know, there are discussions about did he, was he, you know, there are many questions to ask. I mean, that's the general view. And I've studied the Gnostic Gospels that were found in 1945 in Nag Hammadi in Egypt. If you read the Gospel of Thomas, which is one of my favorites, you know, that's that's the teaching, what I'm talking about, the inner, the inner, um, I think there was an inner circle of disciples, including Thomas and John and Mary Magdalene, <clears throat> who were interested in these higher mysteries. There were the outer disciples like Peter and, and so on, who, who were more into him as the Messiah, the leader, the kind of figurehead, um, you know, the resistance movement. Um, so... <clears throat> You know, he was killed as a result of a plot, let's say, by the establishment bigwigs, both in the, the Tiberius administration. He was the emperor at the time, a very evil man, Tiberius, actually. 
he was debauching young boys and killing them at the time on the island of Capri. Very vicious. Uh, he'd gone mad, actually. You know, I mean, he was quite good in his youth. And he'd done a deal with the um, the corrupt uh, sort of um, Jewish sort of um, elites who were benefiting from the Roman system and had done since the days of Herod. Um, and, and they just saw him as a rabble rouser and killed him off. Of course, then something miraculous happened. What happened? Well, you know, was it, I mean, was it, a, it's a mystery. Some kind of resurrection experience happened. Uh, that was part of the mysteries of the ancient world, Osiris, the dying God who comes back. Um, it's there in all, you know, many of the ancient wisdom paths. So in a sense, Christ live, lived the mysteries. Um, <clears throat> And we, we can all make our own minds up how we decide how he did it, you know. And I've read most books that have been written about that. Um, but I think, I think it was love and wisdom con uh, sort of confronting false power and ignorance. That's the dialectic that's, that's epitomized in that, those few years of struggle. But as Jung would say, it's an archetypal moment in history. That that struggle is going on today. That was the struggle in the Battle of the Beanfield. You know, the hippies sworn to peace and love and nonviolence and and gnosis versus the state all there in strength in their helmets with their truncheons, you know. And that was at the same time that they were destroying the miners <clears throat> and Thatcher was in bed with Pinochet, the hard right fascist regime. So there's a so there's a sort of, I think we are living through um, interesting times. I think history constantly recapitulates itself in, in archetypal terms. That's why for my PhD, I coined the phrase transpersonal history. I think as historians, we ought to study the inner meaning of events, not just the outer events in a materialistic sense. It's to extract the real meaning. Um, so anyway, to come along so short, when... When the Celts heard about this guy, Jesus, early, early missionaries, pioneers came to Britain and Gaul. We know the names of some of them. Word got out that this guy had dared defy the Roman Empire. Oh, what was he like? Well, he was a teacher. He was a healer. He was a spiritual seer. He was a prophet. He could heal people miraculously. Um, he was telepathic. He was, he was like, you know, pretty enlightened. He taught a, a religion of love. Oh, and they tried to kill him, and then then they couldn't. Death couldn't hold him. He he was seen alive again. So when the druids heard that, they thought, God, that's a kindred spirit to us, because everything we do, like healing, prophecy, which is part of the druid work, ovateship is a particular type of of druid, um, you know, uh, teaching truth, dharma, justice, law, everything we do, Christ was doing as well. Um, so of course we felt like, oh God, one of our one of our fellows has been captured, but they didn't get him. So there was a sort of sympathy and empathy between the Druids. And that's why you get the tradition that Joseph of Arimathea came to Glastonbury, um, bringing, bringing, and that Mary Magdalene came to Gaul and, and lived here <clears throat> and taught. You know, and I've studied those things. Um, it's interesting. There's, there's no, okay. Just to finish this, um, I set up the Mary Magdalene Studies Society when I moved to France in 2017. 
and we've had various conferences and things. I've tried to reach out to anyone anywhere that's written, that's still alive, about Mary Magdalene coming to France and what she was teaching. Because um, they found a Mary Magdalene Gnostic gospel, you see. Um, she may well have been the consort of Christ, which is really, really interesting. And it looks like the Cathars knew about this, and that's why they were suppressed in the south of France. Um, one of, that's one of the hypotheses. Recently, in the last 10 years, a new, a new book has emerged of the Mary Magdalene Gospel. And what they're saying is it's the original of the Gospel of John. Um, now, if this is true, and I'm, I'm trying to find out information about the source manuscript, you know, where it is. It's in the hands of a Cathar group who won't release it because they're afraid of the Vatican and stuff. Um, if it's true, it's the biggest theological revolution in the history of Christianity for 1900 years. Um, you know, so that's why I'm researching it. Um, so it's an ongoing work. Um, <clears throat> and the, the project is that of global enlightenment against the forces of corruption, violence, militarism, and, and uh, you know, um, all the rest of it in the name of peace. Oh, did I mention the Druids were sworn to nonviolence? The other thing we know about them is they never fought. They didn't take part in the battles. They could advise, they could counsel. Um, they'd be like intelligence officers, if you want. They would instruct, and they, they had the power to say whether a war was just or not. But they never fought physically. A bit like Gandalf in Lord of the Rings. He's like the druid of that sort of story. He never actually really fights. He, he has his staff and he does some magic, but that's it. <clears throat> Okay, so that's it. So, so that's why I'm doing the work I'm doing as peace officer uh, now in Europe to the Druid community. Hmm. Very interesting indeed. The current Druid groups uh, that are uh, existing in France and the UK and other places, Yeah. Um, would you say they're reconstructions of Druidic traditions or are they, do they claim a continuation, uh, sort of direct living lineage, if you like? It's a good question. Um, I've pondered this a lot, obviously. Um, <clears throat> I mean, my friend, uh, Professor Ronald Hutton, who's written a lot of books academically about Druids, he says, no, they're all reconstructions. They started in the 17th century, and there was a bunch of eccentrics at Oxford and stuff started dressing up in white gowns and play acting as Druids, and a lot of them were Freemasons, and it was all good fun. I don't kind of agree with Ronald. I mean, I like him as a person, we're friends, but I, th I think he leaves out some of the basic facts behind his arguments. Um, firstly, he's never really looked at the Irish tradition. Um, he, he restricts his researches to the English aristocracy. And it's true that the English aristocracy was sort of play acting a bit. Uh, one of the key um, uh, people that, that came to uh, you know, the Irish were much more serious about their Druidry and always had been. We know a lot more about Druidry from the Irish medieval um, writings. And I only discovered this when I went to Ireland and met some of them. I didn't know there were Druids in Ireland until I actually went there. I was invited to Tara. I took place at a Druid um, ceremony there for peace just before the IRA declared their ceasefire in 1997 after the Good Friday Agreement. And I was told that there'd been someone from the IRA at our, at our ceremony, like a spiritual advisor, 
who had gone back and told the IRA, no, those British, they're okay, we can trust them. Look, they've done peace ceremonies. So let's do our let's do our ceasefire after all. You know, I was told that later. The Irish really liked their Druidry, and, and it was um it's it's very, very deep in, in the Irish revival movement. Yeats, um, the father of um, well, James Joyce has a whole section in his work on Druids. Um, <clears throat> you know, it's it's part of the Irish imagination in a way that it wasn't in England. Um and yeah, there, I think there is a living lineage in, in the Celtic world, in Ireland and in Wales and in Scotland. Um, and I think some aspects of that have lived on also among the British, um, you know, in England and so on. In Gaul as well, in France, there are Druid orders and in Northern Italy as well. Okay, so now let's say Ronald Hatton's here and he says, oh, Thomas, that's just romanticism. No, no, it's not true, you know. Well, okay, but it's quite interesting, the politics of this, because the English were desperate to say it wasn't true. They were, they were saying everything Irish is diabolic and papist. And that's why Cromwell went and fired Ireland. He burned a lot of the monasteries and churches of Ireland because they're all papists, right? And, but what we have is we have the remains of a period in the early 1600s when Irish scholars went and researched all the manuscripts of the Irish, ancient Irish monasteries, which still survived, you see. Um, and they reconstructed from that a history of ancient Ireland going right back to the Bronze Age. We have written, we have, well, originally oral poetry and then written, dating back to the Bronze Age in Gaelic, telling the stories of Cúchulainn and the other great heroes and the, the um, uh, Finn McCool, who was, who was their great sort of knight, um, and Druids are all over the, the stories. The, the storyline is always, it ends or begins with the Druid, you know. These are written down, and it's really fortunate. And there was a guy called Geoffrey Keating who wrote them all down, who was a Catholic priest. He wrote the, it's, it's, he's the Herodotus of Irish history. I'd never heard of him before I went to Ireland and met, met Druids who told me to read him. And he wrote down the histories of all these ancient Druids and their gods. Now, it's very fortunate he did because the sources they used were all destroyed, a lot of them, by Cromwell and the Puritan invasion in the 1640s. So we're, it's, it's a miracle that literature survived. A lot of it was brought, copies are brought to Europe because the Irish, when they saw what Cromwell and the Puritans were doing, they, they just left the island. They were disgusted at this ignorance in the name of religion, the sort of Puritan hatred of anything that's beautiful, um, including ancient books and stuff. So when Henry VIII um, and his henchmen attacked Glastonbury Abbey, they, they destroyed the library. All over Britain, these ancient libraries went up in smoke. A few copies were surviving of stuff. And they're now in Cambridge and Oxford and worth millions, but so much was lost, but a lot of it survived in Ireland. And that's, uh, that's influenced me a lot in my belief that it's a much more ancient tradition with much more um, lineage, you know, uh, than the English savants are trying to disprove. And they've been doing it since the, 1700, since the 1800s. And it was part of, a, um, um, you know, a destruction of Irish culture. 
So the, one of the other things I've, I've done is I set up a Truth and Reconciliation Commission for Britain and Ireland, because I lived through the wars in Belfast, the conflicts, the bombings in London, Manchester. And I didn't realize what the real story was till I went to Ireland and I met peace studies experts and I met Druids and I, I learned about their love of ancient Ireland and the old legends, which were old before the English even landed on British shores. I think it's wrong that in England you can't do a GCSE in Gaelic or an A-level. There's not a single school I can find anywhere in England that teaches Irish history or culture, like properly, including the language and the religion. You can't study about Druidry in any English school unless I happen to be head of RE. I'd always stick it on the curriculum. I think in Cornwall, they've now... The local education authorities have the right to change the RE curriculum, and in Cornwall, they've stuck Druidry on. It ought to be across across the country because it's our own lost heritage. Um, I'm minded of the Japanese model. You see, in Japan, every decent Japanese man and woman is half Shinto, which is their indigenous pagan religion, and half Buddhist, because that's the new revelation that came in. And now they're all scientific as well. They're sort of part Western. So I think in Britain, we should be part ancient Druid pagan. That's our Shinto tradition, which worship nature, the trees, um, the kami, the Japanese call it, the gods of spirit of place, plus the revealed religions that have come in, like Christianity and, and now more recent ones, Islam, Hinduism. They're all lovely too, but they're just youngsters compared to Druidry, you know. Um, so anyway, I hope I answered your question. Yeah, that's very interesting. It sounds from what you've been presenting that these Druid orders have many different functions, medical, uh, political, yeah. counselling, oracular even. Now, perhaps we can pivot slightly. Uh, this is a good way of doing it, actually, to your 2005 uh, paper, Enlightenments, Enlightenments wow. Towards yeah. a Comparative Epistemology of the Enlightenment Experience. And uh, very fascinating um, paper, and it's available online. I think I will link it in the show notes, actually. And I, I suggest people check it out. It's very interesting indeed. And there you open by making the case that we ought to stop talking about enlightenment as a singular and start talking about enlightenments. And you give some reasons for, for why that's the case. Hmm. But um, perhaps we can talk about those. But in terms of uh, Druid, uh, the Druid um, orientation, if you like, hmm. what, what is the Druid enlightenment, if such a thing is possible? What's the orientation, uh, so we say spiritually or so on? Or is that the wrong way to think about them? Is that not really an emphasis in the Druidic uh, path? What, what's the point, I suppose, of, of hmm. Druid is, uh, being a Druid? What um, if we were to have that half of, you know, half Druid, I suppose it would be half Christian and then half scientific materialism, maybe Yeah, <laughs> you know, to make one and a half, uh, well, you know, in UK. But uh, what, what's the Druid half going to be? Yes. Uh, no, that's a good question. Um, so, <clears throat> well, let me just explain why the plurality of enlightenments. So. I mean, I grew up in, in the 70s um, with people going off to India to find enlightenment. And I met loads of people who'd gone off and done meditation practice and, you know, uh, yoga and all that. And there was this thing, everyone was looking for enlightenment. And I met, I met people that had taken up Buddhism and they were looking for enlightenment. And I got very interested. I got intrigued by this. I thought, wow, I, I, can I have some too, you know? And, and that's when I did my acid experiences. I was looking for enlightenment, right? Um, 
I think, <clears throat> but at the same time, I was beginning my study of Druidry, actually, when I walked to Stonehenge at the age of 19, resigning from the philosophy department at Bristol, because I felt that the people at Bristol were like the gatekeepers Christ grumbled about. They weren't, they, weren't, they weren't letting you in on the fact that there might be a gnosis worth pursuing. I mean, gnosis is the Christian word for enlightenment. It's the knowledge you reach. In the Hindu system, Vedanta means the end of knowledge. There is an end where we get to. It's not ever, ever, ever. Um, there's a place you reach. And I've, I've asked um, in that book, um, I asked, you know, what are enlightenments in all different traditions? So how does a Jewish guy in New York or, or Tel Aviv searching for enlightenment, how will his enlightenment be compared to, say, a Christian or a Muslim or a Hindu or a Buddhist or, or a pagan? <clears throat> um, in the pagan tradition generally, and we can include the Greek, the Roman, the Etruscan and the Celtic, because they all believed in a pantheon of deities. The Druid gods are very similar to the to the Roman and Greek um, their king of the gods was Tyrannus, who was who was a white bull and who was symbolized by the thunder and lightning and justice, as Jupiter was. So Jupiter and Tyrannus were married up, you know. Um, Lu, sun god, was married up to Apollo. And we found archaeological temples throughout Gaul where they accepted the Roman gods and they, they had a little altar to Jupiter, but they carried on doing their thing. So they were pioneers of interreligious um, dialogue, actually, and practice. I think I think that um, to find Dharma, you have to you have to purify your consciousness down to a what Patanjali in, in his Yoga Sutras calls this this stopping of consciousness. You have to get rid of ego, the chattering of the monkey mind, and the persona that you are in this lifetime because druids all believe in reincarnation like buddhists and hindus and greeks did so what you've got to do is plug back into your cosmic consciousness that you've cultivated over many lifetimes and then you have to encounter the uh, you know the the absolute consciousness the divine mind or divine intelligence um the the god images the pantheon are just a way of getting you there they're like, um, you know, like in a Hindu temple, you will have Ganesh and Vishnu and Krishna. But when you when you plug into the 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 absolute consciousness, the oversoul, the the forms of that uh, fall away, and it's the same for for druidry. Where I think druidry and paganism generally is slightly different to some schools of enlightenment. Some schools of enlightenment, I call them pseudo gnostic or false gnostic. They take the view that the world is really, really evil and, and it's under the devil and and the governments are all corrupt and everybody's evil and it's all going down. And the only thing you, we can do is escape from it. And therefore their enlightenment is a sort of escapist thing that the thing is to leave your body as soon as possible, to, to, to leave the planet because the planet's going to be blowing up in a few years. Um, and... <clears throat> And and life itself is is evil and under a devil figure, and therefore we should escape. Um, now druids don't think like that. I mean, we I agree with those sort of Manichaean. I mean, Marnie was one of the people that taught like that. I, I immensely admire Marnie's spiritual courage and his incredible devotion and so on. But I think he was wrong to denigrate nature 
and the natural cycles of life and death and sexuality and and embodiment. I think that to be a druid, one embraces embodiment and life and sexuality and and pleasure and uh, they loved feasting the Celts. They were always having parties. Uh, you know, um, that's why they were doing their, their you know, they loved dancing um, and and still do. You know, the Scottish dance traditions and all that. There's a there's a joie de vivre in in the in the European pagan soul and the Celtic soul, which is not life denying but life affirming. But with discernment, it's not the same as just pure hedonism and and selfish pleasure. It's no pleasure, like Epicurus said, is is one of the most important reasons why we're alive. But we have to use wisdom to celebrate it wisely. Happiness is when we know, you know, um, how to how to enjoy pleasure, and yet not become obsessed by it and not not become addicted, um, because you know the philosopher, the, the the sage, knows that it too will pass. Um, and and the point of happiness is to spread it to everyone. Um, so so I think there's also in Druidry this the notion of collective enlightenment that you get in Mahayana Buddhism. I, I I'm not selfishly seeking for my enlightenment, and everyone else can go to the dogs. That's what I call this false Gnosticism. Instead, one ser- searches for collective enlightenment, collective happiness for all mankind. Because we never know, I mean, you might be my father in a future life, I might be your father, you know, and the same with anyone on the planet, any of the six billion people on the planet could be my brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers in some future life. So I want them to be as happy and enlightened now as possible. Um, so that we we create history as a spiral going up, it goes round and round, but it also goes up a bit each time. What I would really feel upset about is is if the dark uh, pseudo-Gnostics win and destroy this planet. The Caesars are still out there trying to con- conquer everything and, you know, destroy nature with their war machines and militarism, which is causing global warming. So it's still a kind of, um, it's a race to the finish. It, what is enlightenment, I think, is... is <clears throat> um, I think it's implicit in being itself. The essence of the human being is enlightened. Um, Rousseau said it, we just have to get back in touch with our natural inner state. I find it when I go into nature for a week or two. I just I just plug back into the cycles and the rhythms of the sky and the moon and the sun. And, the, you know, it, it's a natural state of being, I think. Um, and... Uh, yeah. Okay. There's a little um, sort of an answer. I hope that's good enough for you. Mm, yeah. Very, very interesting. I'm curious. Uh, you mentioned there communion with nature or immerse, immersion in nature. Mm. I'm curious uh, how else one, from a druid point of view or perhaps wider, plugs back into this cosmic consciousness that you described. And I'm also intrigued by your. Uh, discussion of these two stre- these two strands of religious um, pursuit, the sort of ascetic transcendent approach, you know mm-hmm. and the Im- and the and the imminent immersive approach i'm I'm intrigued by that. These two streams seem to uh, compete. It's a separate, I think, 
bifurcation even than the mystic uh, institution bifurcation, which is so often talked about. This uh, institution versus uh, yogi uh, mm. divide that's seen, I think, perennially. There's this other, almost, I suppose, philosophical, perhaps, divide, view, a divide of view between the imminence and transcendence. And it's very interesting to hear you draw that out also. But anyway, how, from a druidic point of view, what means are used to plug back into this cosmic consciousness? Quiet the persona. These yeah, are some yeah, of the phrases yeah. you used, yeah. Sure. Um, you know, I think they're, they're traditional in, in most cultures. I mean, um, <clears throat> something equivalent to yoga is practiced by most druids. Um, and there's a very French, a great French scholar called Pierre Hadot, H-A-D-O-T, who did a lot of research on um, meditation in classical traditions. He discovered that, okay, you've got it. <laughs> great, excellent. Pierre Hadot, yeah, he's, he's, uh, he was a typical French intellectual, right? Now, <clears throat> what, what I discovered in my writings is that people like Cicero and Posidonius, the great Stoic philosopher, who came to Gaul and wrote a book about the Gauls, which has been lost. Posidonius is one of the greatest philosophers of the Roman era of Greek thought. Um, you know, he was he was doing all these practices and exercises. He came and met the Gaul, the, the Druids in Gaul. They were discussing um, and sharing techniques. Um, I think <clears throat> I think there's a sort of emptying that one does in nature. I think Druids use prayer. I mean, certainly the current Druids that I know, we we invoke the deities of the directions in a formal ritualistic way. Uh, associated with the four directions of earth, air, fire, and water. We work with the elementals. We invoke them in a way that um, is, is also an evocation of our own elemental forces. So uh, it's very much like the, uh, the Rig Veda. The Druids are, um, are on a level with the people that are written about in the Rig Veda, and I'm doing a commentary on some of the Upanishads in my spare time. Um, one of the most important deities of the Rig Veda was Indra. Um, now, Indra is very much a Druid god. He's wandering around on a chariot. Now, the Druid, the Celts invented the chariot in Europe. They were using chariots. All the words in Latin for chariots came from, from Celtic words. It's thought that the Celts invented the wheel. Certainly the iron-rimmed wheel was their invention. Um, and what's very interesting is when I mentioned Tyrannus, um, they found graves of princes, Celtic princes and Druids, from 1000 BC onwards. They like to be buried with either the full chariot or just a wheel or two, because Tyrannus was a wheel god. And this, uh, this idea that you're going into the afterlife to carry on your chariot journey through the heavens was obviously part of the teachings. It's interesting that in Judaism, this became known as the Merkava mysteries, the chariot mysteries. And in the Enochian scriptures, <clears throat> Enoch uh, is taken to heaven by archangels to see God on a chariot. Now in my book, The Kabbalah Runes, I reckon I've, I've tracked back a common route to the Druid, the um, Vedic and the Kabbalistic and Jewish esoteric teachings, going back to, I reckon, about 20,000 BC, <coughs> when these tribes are all one tribe. They found at Gobekli Tepe in Turkey, 
10,000 BC, a sort of even earlier than Stonehenge thing. <clears throat> so I think our ancestors were doing these shamanic journeys. And, and the outer body experience that um, a great Romanian disciple of Mercia Eliade at Culiano spoke about in his book, Outer Body Experiences. <clears throat> these go back, you know, they're shamanic things that then are written about by the Sumerians, the Babylonians, and the Jews. And the Celts were doing this. We, we can do it too. Um, <clears throat> outer body experiences are written about in the, in the Celtic literature. Um, so, and also one shouldn't underestimate the importance of, of the right psychedelics to aid these journeys. The Celts were masters of the right, the right psychedelics, you know, mushrooms and all the rest of it, and still are. I mean, it's not my field. I, I'm not a kind of guy, but I've been into Druid houses with, with herbs and bunches of things hanging from the, the rafters of all different mushrooms, you know, drying and so on and so on. <laughs> so I think nature herself gives us this transcendent, transcendental impetus and the desire to then have those experiences. But it doesn't want us to stay there all the time. <clears throat> it wants us to come home and shear the sheep or, you know, um, write a poem or whatever. Um, yes. So I think I think we all have the dual the dual thing the 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 desire for transcendence and the desire for imminence. We live at the cusp. That's the beauty of what being a human is. <clears throat> You're going to spend thousands of years, you know, out of a body. Enjoy the one you've got whilst you've got it, but make it a vehicle of service for for all other embodied beings, many of whom are in suffering, great poverty. Um, you know, <clears throat> I mean, it's a it's an it's it's not entirely um, unconnected, but a lot of the people that were behind the political revolutionary movements in 19th and 18th century Europe, in France and Ireland and elsewhere, had a strong Druid streak. <clears throat> I've discovered that one of the great intellectuals at the time of the French Revolution was a man called Nicolas Bonville. He's never heard of, we all have heard of Robespierre, you know, the baddie, but Bonville was a goodie. He, he supported the French Revolution in its liberal, earlier idealistic phase. The idea of liberty, equality, fraternity seemed to him totally out of, out of the Druid playbook. <clears throat> and when the French revolutionaries changed the, um, the calendar year, they chose Druidic names for the months. They based them on fruits and flowers. And of course, the Druid alphabet was all based on trees. So, and a lot of them are Freemasons. And we know that um, Nicholas Bonville was very close friends with Thomas Paine. And Thomas Paine, who wrote The Rights of Man, came to France to live with him, escaping from the Tory tyrants who were trying to capture him and stick him in prison. And William Blake tipped off Thomas Paine and make a great movie. This has never been done, you know, the secret history of the Druid resistance across Europe, right? And um, <clears throat> he came and lived with Bonville. Um, and, and Thomas Paine wrote a book saying that Freemasonry came from Druidry. He'd met loads of Freemasons in Paris. He studied their rituals. He said, all they're doing is reviving the ancient mysteries. 
And just to give some weight to this, um, one of the greatest Freemasonic lodges in Paris at the time was called the Lodge of the Nine Sisters, uh, run by a bunch of French intellectuals. Um, the, the most important was Antoine Corne de Jebelin, who wrote this like 20 volume book called Le Monde Primitif Comparé avec le Monde Moderne. It's in French. And tragically, he, he, <clears throat> he like dedicated the early volumes to Marie Antoinette because he knew the queen. Um, he was a savant and he loved the Druids. Every page of the book is like, he says all the rivers of France are named after the old Celtic and so on. He was from Switzerland. Um, and in fact, that's something the French revolutionary government did. They renamed all the rivers, uh, sorry, they renamed all the provinces of France. They call them departments. After the biggest river that flows through that department, it was a way of <clears throat> getting rid of the Ancien Regime with all its little nomenclature. So I live in the department called La Creuse, which is the river, La Creuse, it's down the road. So that was, again, a very druidical thing the French did. <clears throat> so I suppose, I mean, I'm interested in sociology of knowledge and the politics of knowledge. If, if it's true there is this ancient wisdom and if it's been repressed deliberately by, by elitist feudal systems that, that want to suppress knowledge getting out to ordinary people and want to hoard it for themselves, like, you know, uh, the, the small number of people in England that can afford to send their kids to Eton tend to run the country and have done for the last 500 years because, you know, Eton <clears throat> trains them with a brilliant education to, to run the country. Um, I'd like every school in Britain to, to give as good an education as Eton. I've taught at schools like little mini Eton's. You know, I taught at a girls' private school, which is like the girls' equivalent to Eton. And they're lovely. I love the girls like that, you know. But I've also taught in really poor, downtrodden um, comprehensives, which can't afford, you know, got to choose between like a new roof on the library and heating or something. Those kids have just as got as, just as good a potential. And I suppose it's part of my Druid commitment and my philosophical commitment is that we should uh, egalitize these things uh, because the ontological potential for enlightenment's in everybody. You don't have to have gone to Eton. You don't have to have the right accent. Um, so the politics of enlightenment, yeah, it's a big subject. Perhaps one more question from your uh, paper, Enlightenments. Yeah. Um, I think we might have to do another one of these, Thomas, if I can tempt you back, <laughs> because uh, this is just so fascinating. And, uh, you know, that is very interesting, that paper, Enlightenments. You go through, you list, I think it's almost a dozen different uh, categories and many of them have subcategories for instance your hinduism category of course has many subcategories yeah, and you, yeah. you you trace these different schools and, and lines of thought and you sort of propose well what what is the enlightenment of a a christian and what type and what about the enlightenment of a of a muslim and what about the different types of buddhists and so on and the zoroastrian enlightenment and yeah. one of the sections i enjoyed a lot was the ancient greece uh, uh, greek enlightenment but you go yeah, talk about yeah. pythagoras and so on and Plato and Aristotle and so on, very interesting indeed. Mm -hmm. um, a little later on in the in the paper, you you're discussing Mariana Kaplan's Halfway Up the Mountain. Yeah. 
the subtitle being The Error of Premature Claims to Enlightenment, which she published in 1999. To quote you here, Marianne discovered that sometimes people claim enlightenment prematurely for various ego reasons to promote themselves or their organizations, and that sometimes followers claim enlightenment prematurely for their teachers, and teachers go along with it for various reasons. It would presumably take an enlightened pupil to recognize an enlightened teacher, and a non-enlightened pupil would presumably not recognize the enlightenment of even an enlightened teacher. One thinks of the complex relationship between Judas and Jesus, for example. This is a sort of Dunning-Kruger uh, situation. I think this uh, where you talk about the relationship between Judas, Jesus and Judas in this kind of uh, conundrum of enlightenment, the inability, you could say, you only see as high as you are. And if you can see that high, you probably don't need a teacher anyway. This sort of strange conundrum that you've outlaid there. I'm wondering if you could um, uh, just take us through the way you use the Jesus and Judas relationship to talk about that. I think that was very, very well done. And perhaps also, can you suggest some common signs of premature enlightenment claims? Gosh, well. Like all, all sects and cults that that are based on, like, this teacher's word is absolute and you can't question it. You know, it's just the way it is. I'm always suspicious of those and always have been, um, whether they're political or religious, in fact. I mean, because you get political leaders that are the same. I believe in reason. This is why I'm an academic. I believe we have God-given right to question and ask and, and reason. In the In the... Christian tradition, I'm happy my name is Thomas, because I associate with Thomas, who asked the questions. He was always the one that would, would say, well, where's the evidence? You know, what's the proof here? And I, I reckon there's a Thomas tradition in Christianity. I spent ages working on the Book of Thomases. I published four volumes. Um, I found a bunch of Gnostic thinkers all called Thomas. And there's never been a Pope Thomas or a King Thomas. It's sort of, it's kept its name clear. Um, <clears throat> In relation to Judas, yeah, there's a whole mystery there, which I haven't made my final mind up about. I mean, Gurdjieff and other esoteric masters reckon Jesus, um, Judas was one of the Gnostic disciples who had to do this tragic thing of betraying Jesus. Um, <clears throat> you know, I don't know if that's true or not. Um, I will wait and find out when I get to the heavenly library and I ask for the records of all this. <laughs> um, it, it's an interesting hypothesis. And there was, of course, a Gnostic gospel of Judas found in the last few years, which Bart Elmans, I think he's called, Bart Erdmans has written a book about. Um, you know, I suspend judgment on that. Um, but I do, and, and then of course there is the other thing, well maybe no Judas really was a turncoat and betrayed Jesus and shopped him um, <clears throat> and was a nasty chap and he was the treasurer and he was the money guy and he just, he didn't, he just betrayed his teacher. And if so, that's a real tragedy. I mean, that's an absolute tragedy. And of course then that makes me want to say to Jesus, for God's sake, why didn't you spot this, this guy doing this stuff? I mean, and it is a sad fact that sometimes the greatest teachers have terrible disciples who do terrible things. I mean, Buddha had Devadatta who tried to kill him a few times, his cousin, and was causing lots of trouble. And I, if I live long enough, I want to write a microbiography of Buddha because most people don't realize how complex was the the politics of his life, the, the local king that gave him support was then opposed by a rival and dethroned. And 
there was unbelievable power politics going on in the microcosm around Buddha. And he weathered it, you know. And, and there's a famous story of one disciple who loved Buddha so much, he was always in his company, uh, gazing at him lovingly, wouldn't leave his company. Finally, Buddha sent him away because after years, it was a bit embarrassing. And then the guy went up <clears throat> um, to a high mountain nearby and was going to throw himself off. And the legend is that Buddha knew this was happening. So he went over there, sat at the foot of the cliff and said, oh, come back, it's all right, you can carry on with the gazing. And the guy flew, floated down to Buddha. So he had these cities, you know. Um, so there are lots of interesting stories about, that's a pedagogical question. Obviously, as a teacher, I've had lots, I've had hundreds, thousands of students in my life, both adults and, and um, youngsters. Some get what I'm saying. Some really, really hate it and oppose it. I've had death threats. You know, I've had people, and those kind of people are mostly the materialists, the ones that want to be footballers and want want a life of sex, uh, beer, and and power. You know, they hate what I'm saying. Uh, fine, you know, <laughs> uh, um, <clears throat> they can learn somewhere else with someone else. You know. I think we all get the lessons eventually. I think the good news is we all reach enlightenment in the end. Uh, the bad news is it takes some of us a very long time going round and round and round. Keats said, this is a school for souls, this planet. I believe that. I'm a romantic poet like Keats. He was the first guy when I was studying at Brighton Grammar School, reading his poetry, I thought, wow, you know, like... This is really important, this meaning of life stuff. That's much more important than what, what I'm learning here in physics and chemistry and all that nonsense. Um, by the way, I just want to say one thing about the Enlightenment's book. <clears throat> I'm actually teaching a course starting in the spring in Easter called Enlightenments. I've decided it's so important and the planet is in such a mess um, you know, with pandemics and God knows what, lack of trust and all that. Um, and I'm going to be teaching it with our friend Sachin Raja. We're going to co-teach this course starting in April. Once a fortnight, we're going to do a, a session and we're going to look at the different traditions in turn. It's a 12-week, a 12-session course, which will be, you know, um, available. People can, can sign up and do it. And I decided to do this because I think it's the most important thing I can do at the moment. You know, I think we're either going to get some kind of planetary enlightenment going and this secret will get out that it's potential within us all. We don't have to be violent. We don't have to be afraid. A lot of people are very afraid at the moment. They're afraid of their own shadow. They're afraid of people in their own family. They're afraid of Either they're afraid of the vaxxers or the anti-vaxxers, you know. Uh, <clears throat> everyone's afraid because we've been all polarized into these separate camps. Um, or we're afraid of the other religion or the Muslims or the terrorists or the whatever or the, you know. So I think what's the force that can counter all this stuff it has to be enlightenment. Um, <clears throat> and... But then which one? So the premise of the course is we need a planetary enlightenment, a global collective enlightenment, which isn't down to any one tradition. It's going to be a, it's going to be a collective thing, which means we all bring to the table the lineage and tradition that we bear. 
So, you know, it's, it's for everyone to be themselves. Um, <clears throat> so that's, that's the exciting news starting in April. And we'll go into all these questions in much, much more detail. Um, and then you know about my Golden Gate project, do you? You come across that. That's the sort of, that's the, the following year. That's, that's plan. That's what happens next. <laughs> um, Tell us. Okay. Well, that's a really audacious and, and exciting project. Um, okay. So I went to Jerusalem. I've been to Jerusalem several times. I, I love, you know, the Middle East. I've been all around Jerusalem, Galilee, um, Palestine. I've been to Bethlehem and it's a really beautiful place and I cannot work out why the people there can't live together in peace. I've met Palestinians that are some of the most beautiful people I've ever met in my life, both Christian and Muslim and, and secular and poets, you know, and then I've met some Jewish people that are um, unbelievably amazing, and intelligent and creative and <clears throat> Syrians and, and so on. So I set up this Truth and Reconciliation Commission for the Middle East. I've interviewed people. There's a documentary film was made about it. And I just want them to live in peace together, right? I mean, this is the homeland of all these great teachers like, like Jesus. Um, so I went to the old city of Jerusalem. And I walked all the way around the walls. Have you been to Jerusalem? No. Okay. You must have that experience someday. It's really amazing. Um, so it's surrounded by these really thick and high walls built by uh, Solomon the Magnificent, the great Ottoman emperor who, who ruled Jerusalem. Uh, the Ottomans had it for hundreds of years. <clears throat> and in the eastern gate, there are loads of gates, you know, uh, at different directions, orientations. There's the Damascus gate, which goes towards the northeast, takes you out towards Damascus. The eastern gate faces the rising sun. And it looks out over the Mount of Olives. And that's where Jesus used to go and hang out with the disciples. He was arrested there in the garden. I discovered all this by literally going there and walking there, right? In the eastern wall of the old city of Jerusalem, there is a gate which is blocked up. <clears throat> and it's now completely bricked up. Um, and it has been since about 1600 and something. By order of the Ottoman Sultan, the reason is because the legend says the Messiah is going to come in through that gate and, and liberate humanity and bring an era of peace. And the Ottoman Sultan didn't want that. So he bricked up the gate because too many people were hanging around outside the gate waiting for the Messiah, both Jews, Muslims and even Christians. So the, the legend is <clears throat> that Jesus, Christians say Jesus is going to come in through that gate at the end of time. And that's it. Last judgment. Peace, peace on earth, you know, and the baddies get conquered. The Muslims say the same story exactly, except Muhammad will be with Jesus because he's the backup. There'll be the two of them. And the Jews say they're not sure who's coming in, but it's not Muhammad, it's not Jesus, it's their Messiah, it's someone else, the son of David, you know, it'll be whatever. Um, <clears throat> but they all have the same story, right? So I went and sat at that gate. I looked at it all broke, uh, blocked up. And I did my kind of Druid peace thing. And I thought, why don't we open the gate collectively? Why don't we stop the argument over who's coming in first? Is it the Muslims, Jews, Hindus, Buddhists, whatever? Why don't we all come in at once, every tradition? Because we all have different messiahs, but so what? What's the problem? 
you know, we collectively are the Messiah, this generation. We need to open that gate for humanity. And then I saw this procession of religious leaders coming in through the gate, like the famous black and white photograph of Martin Luther King leading a march with a famous rabbi and the Christian guy and so on. They were all sort of linking arms, marching for civil rights. I could see a procession of religious leaders from all over the world coming in through the open gate, ushering in an era of peace, having signed an interfaith peace treaty that their followers will not fight each other. And then the other vision I got outside sitting there was an inside on the Temple Mount itself, which is there's acres and acres of empty space. We could build like a, a peace tent like a sort of green gathering type space, you know, like Buddha cafe, but bigger with huge awnings and little tables. And people can just go there, pilgrims from all over the world, enter through the Golden Gate and just go and meet friends. And, and it could be a pilgrimage center. You'd have to sign a declaration that you weren't going to be doing terrorism and blowing things up. And you were totally nonviolent. You'd be frisked at the entrance like an airport security. And then it would be a beautiful pilgrim space, like for all faiths. So anyway, that's <clears throat> that's the vision I would like to see. Um, and um, to me, I, I think it's not going to happen till we reach planetary enlightenment. We're, we're stuck in this ego place. To go back with your the other question, why is there darkness in human beings? You know, nationalism, racism, this teaching that my religion is better than yours. Your subhuman, you know, the anti-Semitism of history, the Jews were hated by people, uh, outcast. Um, <clears throat> and then the Jews did it back to the Gentiles. The Jews in revenge, you know, hated the Gentiles. And so that fight has been going on for millennia. Um, <clears throat> each religion has that streak of egotism within it. <clears throat> I mean, I've even met Druids and pagans that say they're the best and they hate Christians, for instance, and really haven't stopped blaming them for all the persecutions they've experienced. <coughs> um, I don't think that, I think that, um, yeah, and, and I've also met sort of strong feminist spiritual people that blame all men, full stop, you know, that women are enlightened naturally and men are evil. <clears throat> and therefore what should happen is a matriarchy, women take over, and they'll never forgive the men. You know, I, I accept some aspects of feminist spirituality, but not that sort of revenge consciousness. I think we've got to grow up as a planet. We can't afford that sort of coming from hatred. I don't think you can get to enlightenment from hatred. And I don't think we can afford a non-exclusive philosophy of enlightenment anymore on this planet. <clears throat> you know, we've got to come out of our tribal pockets and start talking peace to each other. Um, which is, you know, exactly what the Druids used to do in the old Celtic world. They, they didn't just belong to one tribe. They had freedom of movement throughout the whole continent. And wherever they went, they were, you know, respected and listened to. <clears throat> so I think we should go back to those times and live in a world of peace, which would be far more exciting than, I mean, just to say, I've been involved in the recent war between Armenia and Nagorno-Karabakh, which is a tragic little war, 44 days. Armenian Christians fighting Azerbaijani Muslims who had lots of funding and super weapons 
Armenians got defeated, kicked out of part of their land in Nagorno-Karabakh. What a waste. What a total waste. <clears throat> I've drawn up a peace declaration about it, asking that we discuss and have dialogue instead of fighting. You know, um, <sighs> more, more enlightenment, please, and less violence, because violence is always the repression of somebody else and their right to speak. So anyway, there we are, Steve. I hope that gives you some food for thought, eh? <clears throat> Certainly. Yeah, incredible. Thank you very much, Thomas. And I must petition you for a, a third one. Maybe we'll make it a triptych. Um, there's so many things, you know, to, just, to, just to tease a few. The Book of Enoch, you've, you've written a very in-depth commentary on that, which I'd love to discuss with you. And uh, then, of course, naturally, what follows from there is John Dee, uh, oh. who you mentioned today. And that <laughs> I'd like to ask you about him. And also your, your uh, paper towards a comparative diabology, also very cool. So those are just some that tease, teases. If, if you'll uh, return for a third, then perhaps mm -hmm. we could go into those things. What do you say? No, that would be, that would be exciting. Yeah, I'd be happy to do that. Okay, excellent. <laughs> well, Dr. Thomas Clough Daffron, thank you very much. My honor. Thank you so much, Steve. Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.